All right, this morning we continue in Genesis, uh, moving into the third chapter. Let's go ahead and read. If you know anything about Genesis, you know the third chapter is uh, the sobering chapter where everything changes. You know, first two chapters, everything's going along pretty well. Then all of a sudden, chapter three shows. I mean, wait a second, what's going on? So uh, we're going to read uh, for verses 14 through 19 this morning and then uh, dive into uh, what the Lord has given me to share with you this morning. So chapter 3 of Genesis. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you will return. So this message this morning uh, entitled God is Just is uh, one of those challenging uh, messages to give. Uh, Not because uh, it's not clearly communicated in scripture that God is just, but that there is so many kind of questions and debatable topics that come out of it. And so as I approached this, uh, this message this week, I, I felt like the Lord had led me to an- try to answer some of your questions. As I told Wanda this morning, I'm going to answer all of the questions you ever had. And she goes, oh, we're going to be here for a couple of days then. I said, no, 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 that's not that many questions. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to answer, try to tackle some of these questions. Uh, however, the other piece of this that makes it difficult is that, again, we are bumping into the mystery of God. The, the, the answers to certain questions that we want, we can't, we can't find them, right? We can't get those answers. There are pieces that we're not going to fully understand about how God's justice works, especially as we kind of understand that in conjunction with God's love. And, and so we have to come to a point that we are uh, okay with God being mysterious. We talked about this early on in one of my messages in Genesis, that we can't demand that we know all of the answers. This is humanity's desire. We, as human beings, we want to know. And if we feel like we don't know something, well, we just don't know because we haven't studied it enough, or we haven't, we don't know, you know, we got to just keep working at it. We keep figuring it out. But we can't know everything, especially when we're talking about God. And so we have to come, become comfortable with the mystery and with being able to say, I don't know. Uh, many theologians, especially those who are, spend their whole lives really trying to uh, understand Scripture, understand what, who God is and all these things, they spend their life really focused on these things. Uh, the trip point is that, again, they think that they can know 
And so they take what they know of Scripture and then they begin to extrapolate out in order to fill in the gaps of the things they don't know. But we must understand that the moment we begin to extrapolate away from what we clearly know in Scripture, we are on shaky ground. And so I want to encourage us this morning as I answer, but maybe don't answer what you, your questions are, that you can be comfortable with the mystery of God and not you know, demand more answers. All right. So we understand clearly from Scripture that God certainly is just. And his justness is supported by some of the other attributes that we have learned about God. Namely, his holiness, his love, and the fact that he is, a, he is truth. He is holy, and because he is holy, he cannot be connected or united with evil. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly separated from anything that is not him, that's not of him, right? Evil is not of him, and so because it's not of him, he can't be connected to it. He can't be united with it. He has to be separated from it because he is holy. Because he is holy, he cannot allow evil to persist. Because he is holy, he must work and come to, at some point, destroying evil. Because he is love, his creation cannot uh, his, because he loves his creation, excuse me, he cannot let them endure evil forever. He loves us. And so he will, he doesn't, he, because he loves us, he doesn't want us to be living lives that are filled with evil all the time and forever. Some of us in this world have received more evil than maybe seems right. <laughs> we've struggled in life and we've had to deal with a lot of difficult things of loss of pain and suffering. And so if God loves us, then that cannot be our eternal condition. If God loves us, he must at some point free us of that struggle, free of us, free us of that pain, free us of the consequences of evil. He loves his creation, and because he loves his creation, if there is a way to redeem his creation, then he must use it. So again, because he loves his creation, the fact that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, rejected, right? Rejected God, chose to go their own way, chose autonomy, chose to do it their way instead of God's way. That was an evil act, which then, of course, separated, we'll talk more about this in a moment, separated them from God. And because it separated them from God, then they, 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 were, con they were condemned to that condition for all time. However, there is a way for God to redeem those he loves. And so he put into, uh, into practice or put into uh, the scenario where Jesus would come and die for us. God is true. And because he is true, he always judges good and evil rightly. Again, this is his justice coming out of, out of, out of this fact and this attribute of God that he is true. God is true and because he is true, he will always reveal good and evil and the consequences of both. Because he's true. He's, he's going to tell the truth. He's not going to hide the fact that your sins will destroy you. 
He's a God who is true, so he's going to reveal what is true about sin, but he's also going to reveal what is true about goodness. Because God is just, this follows that he will punish all evil and he will reward all good. The punishment for evil, again, because he's holy, the punishment for evil is separation. If we understand, like we did last week, that God is all good, that God is love, and all love comes from God, when we do evil, that separation from God, that, that's, pretty, you know, that's a big deal, right? That, that's, we are separating ourselves from the one who is love the source of all love, the source of all goodness. But again, because he is holy, he can't allow that evil to be connected to him. And so it's the natural consequence of evil, of sin. The punishment of evil, the punishment of sin is separation from God. However, the reward of goodness is oneness with God. When we are able to do good, when we are able to do right, when we are able to, uh, to do the things, do God's will, then the reward is that we get to be united with the one who is all good, who is all loving, who is true, who is holy. However, we need to understand that even though God will punish all evil and will reward all good, we have to also understand that punishment and reward do not need to be immediate. This is the tension that we are in today. We do good things, but we don't always reap the rewards for those good things that we do. However, we do bad things, and we don't always reap the consequences of those bad things today either. Consider even the fact that when Adam and Eve sin, the consequence is eternal separation or separation from God. And although he kicked them out of the garden, he allowed them in his mercy to continue to live. Right? The, the punishment wasn't immediate. They had a chance, and we have a chance. The life that we live is a chance to find redemption, to escape the punishment for our sin if we can get to know Jesus. However, one more piece, punishment and reward do not need to be immediate. However, they need to happen at some point. It can't be postponed eternally. If God were never to eventually, you know, never totally eliminate evil, if God were never to reward all good, if that was never to happen, if there was no heaven, if there was no hell, then that would be wrong as well. That can't be. God has to eventually punish evil. And again, we'll flesh this out a little bit more as we go through this message and as we answer some questions. It's not much wind, but just enough. All right, so uh, that's kind of uh, just some foundational pieces about God being just. But uh, we can help, help us to understand this justness of God if we answer some of the kind of the key questions. And the first question I want to address is why does evil exist? Because, you know, this comes out of God being love, first of all, right? 
And, and you have all heard, I'm sure, this, this statement before. Maybe you have even said this statement. If God loves me, if God is all loving, then why is there evil? Why does he allow bad things to happen? I mean, if God really loves me, why does he allow these horrible things to, uh, do I have to experience these horrible things in this world? Why does that happen? I don't get it. Uh, and so that's why we have in our culture, in our world, they're trying to redefine love. Right? They're trying to redefine God by their definition of love. Well, love means that there's never going to be anything horrible happening, so that means, you know what I'm saying? So why does evil exist? Maybe you have an answer for this. This is my answer. God did not create evil. We have to understand that first of all. There's a tendency to fall into this sometimes to think that God was the one who created it. And, and, the, and the semantics of this we have to be careful with. God allowed it to happen, therefore God made it happen, right? And we have to be careful with the terminology we have here. But God does not create evil, but he does allow for the opportunity for people to be evil, to act evil. And this is because he loves us. You see, because God loved us, and he wanted us to have an intimate love relationship with him, to receive his love and to share that love back with him, he created us with a thing called free will. You see, free will is a really key concept that we must understand as Christians because free will is what makes us accountable for those actions, for our actions, right? If they're evil or if they're good, we, we are accountable because we're free. You see, if God forced us to love him in return, then we would just be robots, right? We, we learned last week that love is something that has to be freely given. We can't force someone to love us. God doesn't, can't force us to love him back, otherwise that's not loving. And so free will has to exist where we have the freedom to respond to God's love and to love him back if we want, but also have the freedom to reject God. And rejecting God is evil. Rejecting God is sin. Rejecting God is turning our back on him and doing things against his will and doing bad things. If God didn't allow us to make that choice, then God would not be loving. Because love demands free will. Taking this one step further, we have to understand as well that God cannot violate free will. Some of us, you know, want God to step in. God, why didn't you stop that person from doing that evil thing? Where were you in the moment of that evil thing that I experienced? Why didn't you step in and prevent them from doing evil to me or to others? But we have to understand that God cannot violate free will. Not because he's not powerful enough, but because it violates his very nature. Again, he's a God who loves, and if he loves, he has to allow his people to be free. If he is going to allow them to be free, they have to be able to freely choose to do evil things. If God were at any moment to stop one person from doing something that they had freely chosen to do, then God becomes the author of evil. 
If he can stop one evil act from being done, then he should stop all evil acts from being done, right? I mean, then why, why is he choosing? Why is he just arbitrarily choosing these things? So it's a violation of God's love for him to violate our free will. However, he can limit the consequences of sin, of the consequences of, the, of sin. So he can limit the consequences of one's free will, especially on another. Consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God did not step in and prevent Nebuchadnezzar from throwing them into the fiery furnace. However, God did step in and limit the consequences of that evil act. And this seems to be how God operates. He will not prevent the evil person from choosing evil. But he will at times come in and limit the consequences of that on his people or on the people that he chooses. He also, it seems, always works, according to Romans 8, to redeem the consequences of those evil acts. Perhaps all of us here have experienced that in some way. Not only the evil consequences from our own evil, right? When we make those bad choices, he can redeem those bad choices to bring about something beautiful. But also the things that we have suffered and endured because of somebody else's evil acts, it's amazing how he can turn that around and use it for good as well. We do have a God who is a redeemer, not just of the entire life, but even the individual pieces of our life the individual stories, the individual challenges. So we see why does evil exist? Ultimately, the answer is because of the deep love of God. The next question, what about God's wrath? So now this comes more out of just, uh, out of God being just. What about God's wrath? How can, again, God be loving, but at the same time be wrathful? How does that work? What, you know, how does this fit together? What, this, this doesn't make sense to me. So let me give you a few things to consider. First of all, allowing, as I already said, allowing evil to persist is not loving. So if God were to never punish or destroy evil, then that would not be a loving God. He has to, at some point, destroy evil. God must work to bring about what is good for all. Evil is not good for all, so he must at some point destroy it. It is, however, okay to endure evil for a time, but as we just mentioned, he is always working, even in that, to redeem that evil for good. And so, first of all, the reason that God is wrathful but still loving is because the loving thing to do is to destroy all evil. Second, shielding a person from the consequences of evil is not loving. In other words, allowing someone to continue to behave in an evil way is not loving, that there must be some consequence. God must warn about the consequences of evil. God must 
uh, uh, let people know that evil is bad. A lot of times people will look at God, you know, they look at these verses about uh, God judging or bringing wrath or, or punishing those who are evil. And we can see, we, we see it as a threat. Like, like God is saying, hey, if you don't do this, if you don't act right, if you're not righteous, then I'm going to punish you and send you to hell. But that's a wrong perspective of what God is communicating. God is not threatening people with hell. God is not threatening people with punishment. He is informing them of the consequences of evil. Uh, the illustration that I, I thought of some time ago about this is, is uh, it's like the parent who, who has, you know, maybe they live on a somewhat busy street. And they have a, you know, a little two or three year old, four year old, and, they, and they're out playing in the front yard and they're telling their kid, don't play in the street. Well, why don't you want to play in the street? Because you could get hit by a car is what we say, right? You, know, you don't want to play in the street because you get hit by a car. What the parent is not saying is that if the kid plays in the street, they're going to go get in their car and then go and drive and hit the kid, right? That's not what the parent's saying. So the parent is not threatening the kid. Hey, you better not drive in this or play in the street or I'm going to get in my car and drive over you. They're saying, no, 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 don't play in the street because the consequences of playing in the street is you could get hit by a car. And this is what God is doing with us as well. He's not saying, hey, don't do evil because if you do, I'm throwing you into hell. He's saying, hey, don't play with evil because if you do, you're going to end up in hell. God shielding people from those consequences of evil is not a loving thing. If he were to allow, I mean, you think about even the natural consequences in our world that he has already created in it. Certain behaviors, if you do them, there's some negative consequences that come from that. And so we recognize that these temporal punishments that God doles out through creation, through the natural way of things, uh, allow uh, the individual to come into recognition that evil doesn't pay, that there's consequences for evil, in the hope that they will not have to pay the eternal consequence. And so God pours out his wrath even in small ways and temporal ways in order to help us recognize the consequences of evil so that we will choose good instead of evil. Third, in regards to God's wrath, forcing one against their will to be with God is not loving. Again, as we were talking about free will just a minute ago. Forcing someone against their will to do what they don't want to do is not loving. Allowing them to freely choose is loving. Now, God does need to let them know that what you know the consequences of their choices. Like right? if God didn't let us know the consequences of our choices, right, that wouldn't be loving either. So if we were just kind of ignorant, didn't understand, didn't know, right, and we just kind of lived our lives in an evil way and had no clue, then you know, we can't really, you know, we need to understand that God has to reveal that to us, right? So we know what is right and what is wrong, which is why we have. God's word, right? It reveals to us his will, reveals to us what is right and wrong. All of, and as I just mentioned, the natural consequences. Ultimately, with this piece of God's wrath, we need to trust God's 
nature, that he's true, that he's loving, that he's just. We sometimes get... The questions that begin to come up, what about the person who lives in this, you know, tribe that, you know, had never heard about Jesus? You know, what what about them? Or what about, you know, the person who, you know, is kind of somehow didn't get to hear the name of Jesus or didn't know? What about, you know, we have all these whatabouts and we want to try to try to answer all those questions. And here's where, again, we have to just trust in the nature of God, right? Trust that he knows, Trust that he is loving. Trust that he is just. He is going to do the right thing. We don't know for sure how that's all going to play out. But we can trust him. The next question that comes up is what about God's mercy? So we have, what about God's wrath? You know, how can a loving God be wrathful? But then the other side is, what about God's mercy? How can a God of justice allow for mercy? How can he give mercy? That doesn't make any sense. And so we need to understand this as well. First of all, God does not and cannot overlook evil. Sometimes we think that because, you know, once we come to Christ, that God, you know, and once we give our life to Jesus, once we repent of our sins, that God just kind of, okay, I'm not going to, I'm just going to overlook your sin. I'm not going to pay attention to your sin. I'm just, you know, oh yeah, okay, we're just going to ignore, we're not going to look at that anymore. But that's not what God does. God punishes all sin, even yours, even those of people who have repented of that sin. He punishes it all. All evil must be punished. However, it is just for God to forgive one who does evil. But in order to do that, someone other than the one who did the evil needs to pay the price. Needs to face the punishment for that sin. Of course, this is the good news of Jesus, amen? That Jesus is the one who willingly came and suffered for us. Jesus is the one who took that penalty. All the sins of the world were placed on Jesus on the cross. The sins that were before he arrived and the sins that came after he died and rose from the dead. So it is just to punish someone other than the one who did evil, but only if the punished one freely chooses to receive that punishment. God did not force Jesus to come and die on the cross for us. Jesus freely chose that. He could have said no at any time. It's one of the reasons I love the prayer of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross, Jesus where he's crying out to God, saying, is there any other way? I don't want to go this way, but your will be done, not mine. And he freely chooses to go. He also says that he, no one takes his life from him, but he freely lays down his life for others. And so we see that Jesus is, uh, uh, freely chooses to receive our punishment, But also the other caveat to this is that it's just to punish someone other than one who died, 
did the evil, excuse me, only if the punished one freely chooses it and he has no evil of his own to be punished. Again, this is why it was important for Jesus to be perfect. That he lived his life perfectly, never giving in to the temptation, never choosing evil, always choosing right. Moving on, the next aspect of this is that uh, God cannot overlook good. He can't overlook evil. He has to punish it. But he also cannot overlook good. All good must be rewarded. It is just to allow the reward to be given to someone else, though. All good should be rewarded, needs to be rewarded, but the person who does the good doesn't have to receive the reward. So we can take the reward of a good person and give it to someone else, but only if the one who is good agrees to allow it. And the one who receives the reward meets the conditions laid down. Again, this is salvation. Jesus was the righteous one. Romans 5, 15 through 19. Jesus was the righteous one. We get his righteousness when we meet the criteria that have been laid down, which is, of course, repentance and faith. And so we see that God's mercy works with justice because he's not overlooking evil when he gives mercy. He is still punishing all evil. And he's also not just ripping off a reward from someone else that hasn't freely given it and not just giving it arbitrarily, but giving it to those who have chosen to repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus. All right, and then the final question, the big one, what about heaven and hell? (laughs) Sorry, I'm not going to answer all your questions about heaven and hell, but I just want to just briefly mention a few things about heaven and hell, because heaven and hell are a great mystery. Scripture actually doesn't give us a whole lot of information about either one. We have isolated verses here and there, trying to figure it out. Even the book of Revelation, right? We got this whole book that is focused on that on end times, right? And it still doesn't give us a lot of information about heaven or about hell. You got this lake of burning fire and all these kind of the gnashing of teeth. You got this you know, kingdom coming down. We got gold streets. We got you know, pearl gates, all this kind of stuff. But we still kind of like, it's a bit of a mystery. And so let me just point out, clear, first of all, what scripture clearly teaches Some of the things that it clearly teaches about heaven and hell is that, first of all, the repentant will receive mercy and life with God. We know that. This is clear in Scripture. Those who repent of their sin, place their faith in Jesus, will receive mercy and life with God. On the other hand, the unrepentant will receive wrath and death without God. Again, these two things seem to be clear. We understand how do we get to heaven, how do we get to hell, what the choices are. The repentant, life with God. The unrepentant, life without God, death without God. 
And we also know that the decision for where you go, whether you repent or not, is made today. And that decision that you make today impacts tomorrow. We cannot wait until after death to make this decision. Let me implore those who may be here today who have not made that decision yet. Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. He is the Savior of the world. He died for your sin. If you do not recognize first and foremost that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, then let me point you to Jesus who willingly came and died for you. Let me point you to Scripture that tells us what life is all about. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 reveal to us who God is that we have been created by him and for him. And that we are meant to be an intimate, loving relationship with him for all time. However, we have chosen, as we've seen in chapter 3, we've chosen just like Adam and Eve to go our own way, to do our own thing. And because we've chosen that, we have been forced to be separated from the Holy One, the one who created us, the one who loves us, And that separation will continue for all eternity unless we choose to repent of our sin and turn to him and trust that Jesus' death and resurrection paid for our sin. The decision has to be made today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't wait. Make the choice now. The repentant today will enjoy absolute perfection tomorrow. Those who remain unrepentant today will endure absolute evil tomorrow. There is no chance to decide or change after we face death. Along the lines of heaven and hell, we have to ask this question, does God send people to hell? Kind of answers it a little bit, a little bit earlier, but just want to revisit that one more time. It seems that God doesn't send people to hell, but instead allows people to go to hell. It is a free choice that each of us can make. A choice to either bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, or choose to may, remain control of our life and do and live our life the way we want. If we choose to be autonomous, God will allow us to receive the consequence of that choice. You see, oftentimes when we say this word that God is sending people to hell, sending assumes that they don't deserve it and that they didn't choose it. But that is not true. If God sent people to hell, then he would not be loving. He doesn't send them because they don't deserve it, you know, be out of, you know, but they don't deserve it. He allows them to choose that. If they want to go and live their life autonomously, he will let them do that. Again, that comes out of his loving nature. So these are some of the things that we know about heaven and hell, but also there's things that aren't so clear about heaven and hell. And namely, heaven and hell We don't understand very much about the nature of heaven and hell, what it's going to be like when we get there. 
Like we as Christians, we, we would love to know, right? Like what's heaven going to be like? And some of us have some imagination of what that's going to be. And some of us talk about that and we have a good time. You know, I know my wife and I used to talk a little bit about, you know, playing, you know, harps on clouds, right? You know, and that's the, some of the imagery that's out there, right? Yeah, that'd be great. I'm like, how boring is that? Like, I don't want to do that. I harp really on a cloud. Really? I mean, flying would be cool, but harp? No, I playing? No, I can't do that. Right. So what is heaven like? Right. And so we have imaginations of what heaven may be like. But we really don't know. It seems clear from Scripture that it's going to be way better than what we experience here on earth because there's not going to be an evil and evil anymore, right? Sin's going to be dealt with, right? We're going to be able to enjoy a perfect existence around perfect people. <laughs> That'll be pretty nice. We're sure that it's going to be a union with God, but we don't know how much like it's going to be how, how much like today is it going to be like are we going to have kind of similar lives that we have now or is it going to be totally radically different than what it is like right now are we going to you know we're going to still have to work do i get still pull weeds oh please lord no <laughs> what kind of activities you know i kind of like to think you know like uh, yeah, cuz you know there's a, our world is pretty big right i mean there's a lot of cool places you go visit and I've kind of, over the last you know, four or five years, I just feel like, you know what, I just kind of feel like it, heaven's going to be pretty similar to what we have now in some senses. And one of the senses is that, like, you know, I can go and visit those great places around the world when I get to eternity, right, when I get to heaven. Right? I can just, like, you know, we get a, I get to go, I'll go visit Italy, you know, I get to go see Israel maybe, I get to go see these, you know, European countries that I always wanted to go visit, you know, or I can go to the, even just go to the East Coast. That'd be fun, right, you know? Hey, the East Coast is pretty cool. Anyway, but, you know, so, you know, like Mars, like, you know, I'm going to go visit Mars, like, when to heaven, right? I mean, hey, I take the bus to Mars, let's go. Anyway, you know, I just, so, like, you know, is that what it's going to be like, or are we going to be able to do those kind of activities? Do we get a, you know, I go out to play golf, right? Some people talk about, you know, oh, you get a hole in one every time you play golf, right? Well, then I'm not playing golf right that's no fun why would you want that right that's just not i want to i want to shank a few in the woods right uh and so how do we you know what's that look like we don't know and the same with hell we're not sure what the nature of hell is going to be like either and there's much debate about hell we do know for sure that it is separation from god but we're not sure is it eternal torture is God like actively torturing them for all eternity, for all, forever? Is that really what hell, hell is? Some verses seem to lead, lead that way, but maybe, maybe not. Is hell uh, just an eternal existence around, surrounded by total evil? I, is that what you know, hell is? Maybe, I don't know. Or is it total annihilation? So basically, you know, after a period of time, you, you just totally get destroyed. You're no longer exist. I don't know. There's debates on all of that. And I, and I think we need to, again, be careful. Know what Scripture tells us, but be careful when we begin to extrapolate out what that means. And when we begin to talk about the nature of heaven and the nature of hell, we begin to extrapolate because Scripture is not very clear on what that is actually going to be like. We do know that heaven is union with God. We know that hell is separation from God. And that's enough, isn't it? Can we embrace the mystery and not feel like we need to extrapolate it out and know all the answers? All right, worship team, come forward. Just a, a couple of final thoughts here.
as they do so. One of the tensions in understanding the nature of God is in his, in his sovereignty and free will. Hey, we got all three today. That one went down earlier. That's perfect. Yeah, all right. I was thinking that Mark wasn't going to have that experience, but he got it. That's nice. All right. Between God's sovereignty and free will is a tension. And we've got actually entire, uh, you know, uh, theological streams of thought that come down on opposite sides of that. The Calvinist side tends to kind of lean more into God's sovereignty. The Arminian side tends to lean more into free will. And so let me encourage us to recognize again with God that we need to be able to be comfortable holding on to two things that are intention. And not feeling like we need to extrapolate out in order to know all the answers. We must hold on to the tension of God's sovereignty and our free will. When we extrapolate sovereignty of God too far, God becomes the author of evil and we become simple robots that can't really love God in return. However, if we extrapolate free will out too far, God is unable to save and we are all doomed in our sin. So we have to hang on to both sides, that God is sovereign, that we do have free will. They seem to clash at points, but we need to just like hang on to these and just trust God for the clash points (laughs) because it's a mystery. We have a God who loves us. Amen. We have a God who is true. Amen. We have a God who is holy. Amen. We have a God who is just. Amen. All right, let's stand and we'll sing a song. I'll come back and close in a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for who you are and that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that uh, we can trust you. You Just reminding ourselves again that you are the one who is infinite. You're the one who created this all. You know how it works. You are beyond us. Help us to remember that we are the created, not the creator. And so when we find times of tension and understanding your nature, that we would be okay to say, I don't know. But thank you, Lord, that you do reveal enough about who you are. You do reveal these amazing truths that you are true, that you are holy, that you are loving God, you're a good God, and that you are just, that you will punish all evil. We can trust you. Thank you for a book like 2 Peter that reveals truths to us about you as well. Verse chapter 3, verses 8 and following. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that, sh that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, a hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We have cupcakes to celebrate uh, Riverland's dedication. So if you would like a cupcake, go do it. We have another song. If you want to stick around and sing that with us, God's good. <laughs>